If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at another story um, about the life of Abraham today. So we're going to look at chapter 18. Uh, wanted to, we're going to read verses 22 through 33. But if you have a copy of the scriptures, please feel free to keep your Bible open because I'm going to summarize the first 21 verses as well. Also, if you're interested in having your children go to children's church, now's the time for them to move in that direction. And remember, family, they're going to come back during communion. There's going to be activity, and it's good. Part of our people are coming back. That's a good thing. Um, want to do two things before I read. One, just to give you a quick health update. So I had a really good week this week, so I'm very thankful for that. So those of you that prayed, thank you. Um, I, I, have, I feel really good. I'm four weeks out of surgery, and I don't know, there's just something about that third or fourth week where you really start feeling, I don't know, at least I have anyway, exponentially better. And so I'm very thankful for, for a good week. So I praise God for that, and thank you for your prayers. Uh, I have three doctor's appointments this week. Uh, they will all be uh, basically second and, or third and fourth opinions about what I should do moving forward with, with chemo or, or whatever else. And so this is going to be a big week for us medically. Um, I've got a bunch of tests that have been sent off. Hopefully the results will be back. And so everything's kind of converging into this moment in which Dave and doctors will have to make a decision about what to do next. And so if you'd be praying about that, I would, I would appreciate it. If I do start chemo, then uh, I need to start uh, on or before August 20th. And so I have a couple weeks to make some decisions. And um, it's not an easy decision to make. And so for what it's worth, I would appreciate your prayers and, uh, and your concern, really. I, I, I covet that. I'd love for you to pray for me and care about me and my family. Um, so I'll, I'll keep you posted. Obviously, next week I'll give you another update. Uh, we're leaning toward doing chemo, which I mentioned before, but um, I'll give you an update next week. That said, this summer we've taken a break from Romans and we're thinking about the life of Abraham together. And remember, the life of Abraham takes up Genesis 12 through 25. And so we're thinking about basically Abraham lived, what, 175 years, something like that. Maybe I'm off a little bit. My mind's a little fuzzy. But these stories give us like 16, 17 stories in these chapters 12 through 25 about this man's life. And remember, as we're thinking about Abraham together, we're thinking about these questions. What, what is faith? Like, what is my faith? Who, who is God? Who is God for me? And our tagline that we've been thinking about hopefully every week is this. Uh, if you want to understand Christianity, if you're here and you're just exploring Christianity or don't know anything about it, or if you've been a believer for a really long time, remember, this is a synopsis of faith. This is our tagline. Letting go. Leaving behind, traveling light. That's what it means to believe in God. We got to let go of things. We got to travel light. We got to leave behind. That's what Abraham does his whole life. Does he fight against that? You better believe it. Are there times when he clings to things when he shouldn't? Yep, sound familiar? We do too. Letting go, leaving behind, traveling light. Here's Genesis 18, 22 through 33. Listen to this. This is the word of God. So the men turned from there and went down toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. 
Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Y'all heard of this story before? Hmm. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are faithful and good. We thank you that your word is true and that we can bank our entire lives on it. Lord, we ask that you would fulfill your promises in us and to us because of Jesus. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work in us so that temptation has less and less appeal and, and truth and, and beauty and selflessness is more compelling. Lord, you know that we live in a time in which people want all kinds of power and influence. Lord, would you work into us truth? Would you remind us again and again that we're not here just to be better people and learn how to be good we're here because we need to be reminded that you're God and we're not. And we need your truth to continue to change us and transform us. So have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Letting go, leaving behind, traveling light. So this morning we're going to look at the story and then takeaways. Similar to the last number of weeks. Think about the story, then get into two takeaways this morning. So I want to try to summarize this whole chapter, even though I just read the last half. So let's get into the story. And as, I, as we're getting into the story, I really want you to try to put yourself there. That's why God gives us these narrative texts, so we can let our imaginations go with what's there, so that we can see ourselves in the story. So if you want to, have a blank canvas in your mind and try to put up these pictures as we go through the story together. So... Chapter 18, verse 1 begins with a hot summer day with Abraham and Sarah hanging out in their tent. It's mid-afternoon, 
And here they are in the heat of the day, just trying to avoid the heat. Now, I know in eastern North Carolina, you know nothing about this. It has been hot, hasn't it? Abram and Sarah are in the tent, and all of a sudden, three guests appear on the horizon and make their way toward the tent. Abraham and Sarah see these three approaching. And so Abraham goes out to them to meet them, to help them to see what's going on. Abraham goes out to them and says, hey, come on in. He invites them in. Matter of fact, you read back through the text, you'll find that Abraham prepared this elaborate feast for them. I'm talking like bread. I'm talking steak. I'm talking a lavish feast. He brings them in and somewhere along the way, Abraham and Sarah realize that one of the three is a divine presence. Now, we know that because we look at verse 1 of chapter 18 and it says, The Lord came. But Abraham discovered that. Sarah discovered that somewhere early on that they were in the presence of God. So they have this meal. And following the meal, this divine being makes a pronouncement. You can find it roughly verse 10 of chapter 18. Have y'all ever been to the, um, are you familiar with the New River Gorge Bridge in West Virginia? You ever heard of this place? I remember the first time I crossed this bridge. It's one of the highest bridges in the world. I think it's the third highest bridge in the United States. It's like 876 feet off the ground. That is a long way. Every year the bridge closes down for one day. One day a year the bridge closes down except for local traffic. And the bridge closes down so that people can jump off the bridge. Base jump, they can do all that stuff that they like doing that I can't stand because I'm terrified of heights. But what happens is last year, or maybe it was the year before, recently about 100,000 people gathered together on the bottom part of the other underneath the 800, like they were there on the water. All right, and around the water watching people jumping off the bridge. Now, I want to tell you this illustration because I want you to put yourself all the way down close to the river. I want you to imagine that someone picks up the, most, the, the biggest rock they possibly can using whatever mechanical device they need, and they drop it off that bridge. They just, they just push it off the bridge, let it go off the bridge, and that rock goes 875 feet, and you're at the bottom, and you watch that rock plunge and explode everywhere. If you can get that mental image in your mind, that's what it meant that for God to make the following pronouncement to Abraham and Sarah. You are going to have a son. Can you imagine how their hearts would have leapt with joy? Can you imagine? They've been waiting for this. And this messenger says, Sarah, you're going to have the child, the one you've been waiting for. Remember, she's in her 90s. And he even says, I'm coming back next year, about this time, because you're going to have a son well, Sarah's immediate response was laughter. We'll have to save that for another day. So then that gets us into verse 22 through 33. See, the pronouncement has been made. The, the, the meal is over. And now these three and Abraham begin to leave the tent 
and they begin to walk outside because the three are headed down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they leave the tent and began, began walking down the road, two of the three went ahead. So there was a separation so that two went ahead and Abraham was left walking with God. And as he was walking with God, God was telling Abraham about the need to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, a place a little ways down the road, a few miles ahead. Now here's why God needed to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you look at the end of chapter 18, or at least, sorry, if you look toward verse 18 through 21 of chapter 18, you'll find out that the outcry was heard by God. The outcry from those in Sodom and Gomorrah. There were people in Sodom and Gomorrah who were crying out. Now, the reason why they're crying out is this. It's actually the same word that's used. Remember back in chapter, early part of Genesis where a brother killed a brother, Cain killed Abel? And and there was this outcry from his blood? A cry for justice? A cry for help? A, a, A demand for justice for this murder? Same word, same idea. God hears that there is injustice that is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, and so he's got to go down and check it out. Now, my hunch is that if you've grown up in the church, you probably have heard a lot about the sexual immorality in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's true. Homosexual, sexual immorality, heterosexual, sexual immorality. The ancient world is no different than the modern world. There's sexual immorality to go around everywhere, every culture, every place. That's true. Listen to what Ezekiel chapter 16 says about Sodom and Gomorrah. This is verse 49 of Ezekiel 16. This was the guilt of your sister. This is God speaking to his people. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride excess of food and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and the needy. Do you remember that part about Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, sexual morality, problem. But God says the outcry is that there are people in Sodom and Gomorrah who are full of pride. They have all kinds of food. They have a prosperous and easy life. And they don't care about the poor. They don't care about the needy. And God even turns and says to his own people, you have done worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He even adds onto there, you, my people, are even worse than Samaria, the capital of idolatry. God is saying that about his own people. So, beloved, feel the weight of this. We're no better than anyone else. And the whole point of Ezekiel 16 is that God ends the chapter by saying, I will atone for all of your sins. It's amazing. It's amazing. He not only says, this is who you are, but I, God, am going to do something about it. He doesn't say, clean yourself up. He doesn't say, start on my make yourself better program. 
He says, I will atone for your sins. So God and Abraham are talking and, and God is telling Abraham what he hears. He's saying, I gotta go down and check this out. I gotta go down and see all the immorality. I gotta check and see if the injustice is real. I gotta see what it's like and we find out in Ezekiel, it is bad. It's bad. And that's when Abraham begins his discussion with God. That's when we, what we read together comes into play. That Abraham and God start talking and he begins to say to God, God, if, if, if there are 50 righteous people there, will you spare the place? Well, how about 45? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And after Abraham asks God about 10, God, by the way, says yes to all of them. One of the guys I read this week said, Abraham wouldn't take yes for an answer. You like that? How about 50? Yes, great. How about 45? Yes, great. How about 30? All the way down to 10. And when he says 10, God says yes. And then they part ways and the story ends. It's like this unbelievable cliffhanger. Well, well, what ends up happening? God says, yes, Abraham. Like, I'm reading the story and I'm thinking, Abraham, God says, yes, let's go. Like, come on, what are we doing now? And that's where the story ends until chapter 19. It's just, Abraham asks all these things and God says, yes, 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 yes. And then cliffhanger. Well, that's the story. Let's get after our takeaways. Two takeaways. The first takeaway is this. God is developing in us a posture of seeking the good of the place. I mean, at some level, doesn't it just shock you that Abraham is interceding and begging God for mercy on, beha- on behalf of a place? Does that strike you? Does that, does that sound odd? I mean, it just leaps off the page. You can't, you can't get around it. Abraham is seeking the good of a place. God is trying to work into us a posture of seeking the good of a place. How about the good of a place where we live and beyond? Do you love where you live? Just at some level. Do you, do, you, do you like living here? I hope at some level you do. Maybe you don't. So maybe you'll move and go somewhere else and I hope you'll find a place that you like. But most of us probably live in a place that we kind of like, at least to some extent. And if we don't like it too much, then we, we move. But do you like where you live? Can, can you see places where you live, where I live, where we live that need Jesus? Can you, can you, have you noticed that? Have you ever thought about that? I was watching a quick video this week of a guy who has spent a lot of time writing about loving the city and being interested in the city. And he was telling a story about going to different countries 
and talking to church, uh, churches, pastors, and whatnot in other parts of the world about the city and the importance of loving place. And he said one thing that surprised him is that when he started talking to other people in other places about the city and place, they responded by saying to him, hey, we're not Americans. We have a tendency to like the city. And Americans in general can have a tendency not to like the city. So you don't have to convince us about loving place. We're there. I wonder how much of that is true. I wonder how much of that is us thinking, well, bad things happen in the city and we need to stay away from city. Whether that's our own or bigger places in our state, avoiding our nation's capital. I wonder sometimes if there isn't this sense of, yeah, those are bad things over there. We just need to separate from that because by separating we'll be safe will be good. Abraham was seeking the good of the place. Instead of thinking about where we live just in terms of maybe influence or power, instead of just thinking about where we live in terms of politics, instead of thinking place in terms of that, Instead of that, would you think about where we live in terms of church planning? Would you think about where we live in terms of listening to those who are poor, marginalized? Would you, would you be open to the idea of, of watching what's going on where we live, being a good student of that? In other words, would you think about your own jobs as not just getting a paycheck or building a resume or building a career? Would you think about your jobs and your callings during the week in terms of service? In terms of helping out the place where you live? Would you think about your life in terms of seeking the good of where God has placed you? God wants us to develop this posture of seeking the good of where we are. Here's the second takeaway. God is developing gospel habits in us. Looked at this last week, we're gonna look at it again this week. God's developing gospel habits in us, meaning he wants us to think about the gospel, he wants us to live from the gospel. He wants us to process our lives through the gospel so that we're not just thinking about life in terms of principles or five steps to this or that. There's something much deeper that there is a reality that Jesus has come into the world, he died, and he actually rose from the dead. And that is what is supposed to shape everything about us. So that what Jesus did doesn't just serve as an example that we follow, he's saved, redeemed, made us different and new so that 
his pattern of life might become ours. Not so that we can follow his pattern and get to God, but because of what he has done, he's changing us to want what he wants and love what he loves. God is working into us gospel habits of thought, action, and process. So that by his grace, we kind of take ourselves out of the middle and think about God in the center of our lives and, and the cross in the center of our lives and, and the empty tomb is the center of our lives. Our union with Jesus as giving us definition and purpose and meaning, that's developing gospel habits. So let's jump back in to the end of chapter 18 and remember, let's get back to the cliffhanger and let's actually jump. Let's dive in. Let's look even more into this section in chapter 18. Why does Abraham stop at 10? Why does he stop at 10? Well, here's the answer. Abraham is thinking God's thoughts. He's following God's logic. Now hang in there with me. Hang in there. Abraham is following the God's thinking. He's thinking the same thoughts after God. He's following God's logic. Why, why is he, stop? why does he stop at 10? Well, I can tell you that he's following God's logic and thinking God's thoughts for two reasons. Here's the first one. Just look at the text at what Abraham believes. Here's the first thing that Abraham believes. Look at verse 25. This is, if you want it fancy language, this is Abraham's theological commitment. This is what he believes. He believes that God is just. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not God do justly? Abraham knows that God is just. He knows it. God will never shirk his responsibility to be just. He will make the world right whether that's in Sodom and Gomorrah or whether that's in Greenville, North Carolina, whether that's in Winterville, Pitt County, wherever, God will make the world right. He will never shirk his responsibility to be just, ever. Here's the second thing that Abraham knows. It's not just that God is just. Abraham knows that God is gracious. Did you notice all the language that Abraham uses from verse 27 and then verse 30 and 32? Lord, I am but what? Dust and ashes? See that in verse 27? He's using the same language of how he was created in Genesis 1. He's saying, look God, I am the creature before the creator. I am absolutely dependent upon you. I am nothing compared to you. Abraham knows that God is profoundly gracious. Lord, you are so good. Would you just allow me one more question? Lord, Lord, can I come back again? 
Abraham knows that God is gracious, and if you can't see it from this text, remember chapter 15 and God walking through the pieces. He knows that God is gracious. He knows that God is just. Those are the anchors for his interaction with God. Beloved, if God is not just, there is no hope for the world. If God is not gracious, there is no hope for us. And this is the very anchor that leads to Abraham engaging with God and talking with him. In other words, if you need me to say it another way, there is this tension in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, between justice and mercy, justice and grace. And Abraham is highlighting that. Lord, this is a place that is way out of accord with how you've made us. But Lord, there are righteous people there. What are you gonna do? Because I know you're gonna be just, and I know you're gracious. You see, he's following God's thoughts. He's tracking with the logic of God. But why does he stop at 10? This is the second thing. How do we know he's following God's thoughts? Well, look at what Abraham knows, that God is just and gracious. Here's the second thing. Why does Abraham stop at 10? Let's go through it. God, will you spare for 50? Yes. 45? Yes. 30? Yes. 20? Yes. 10? Yes. If it was me, my mind would go to five, and then I'd go to one. But at each of those, at each of them, God says yes. God is saying yes. I will spare them for 50, 45, 30, 20, 10. Yes, yes, yes. You are following my mind, Abraham. You are following my logic. You're right on target. But Abraham knows there aren't 50. He knows there aren't 45. He knows there are not 30. He knows there's not even 10. Lot and his family left, and Sarah perished, his wife. Sorry, we don't know Lot's wife. That just popped in my head. We don't know her name. Lot's wife perished. He knows that there's not even five. And he knows, Abraham does, that he's not the one. And God says, yes, for the righteousness of one, I will forgive others. Do you see it? The logic of God and his thoughts and his thinking is moving forward in history. God is moving toward the cross. Ultimately, in God's mind, God is thinking about how he will save and forgive and spare because of the righteousness of one. And friends, his name is Jesus. And it is on the cross where we see the justice of God and the grace of God, as the psalmist says, kiss. 
It is there that we see the justice of God and the mercy of God meet. It's there on the cross that we see the grace of God and the justice of God fit together, visibly, tangibly, in real time and space for people like you and me.